Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Target is looking for a print and pattern designer for their home division in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Skidmore Studio is looking for a senior graphic designer in Detroit, Michigan. For remote work, the Wikimedia Foundation is looking for a UX designer. And Bandcamp is looking for a mobile applications developer. Companies, stop making excuses on your D&I efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And this week, I'm talking with a true pioneer in the comics and illustration industry, Ray Billingsley, nationally syndicated cartoonist and creator of the comic strip Curtis. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Ray Billingsley, and I am the creator of a syndicated strip called Curtis. And it is about a young 11-year-old African-American boy his family, the neighborhood characters, and the joys and tribulations of growing up in the inner city. It made its debut in 1988, and from last that I've seen, is it has a, a loyal daily readership of like 43 million. Wow. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. That is amazing. Before we get you know more into learning about your work and your journey, as an artist, tell me, how are you holding up during this pandemic? How have you been? It's kind of normal for me, actually. I spend most of my time pretty much in the house already. And I have a very small circle of friends, and they're usually busy a lot. So it's not like we really get out and get around each other so much. Uh, being a syndicated cartoonist means you have to isolate yourself a lot. So everyone's complaining about having to stay in. This has been normal for me. This has been most of my life, just being pretty much by myself and creating. Have your work days changed any or are they still the same? No, they're still the same. I still have to, you know, hit my deadlines on time. Well, actually, I need to catch up because I'm like a week or so behind. But uh, pretty much everything is still the same. I just have to make sure my content goes out and, and not to get so distracted. Because uh, I could easily be distracted by one of my new favorite programs or something like that when I should be working. But, you know, you, you can't work all the time. I have to have some normal life. But other than that, it's pretty much the same. Let's go ahead and jump into Curtis, which is 
such an important and pioneering feature on comics pages. Like you said, it's been around since 1988, huge readership. For those listening who, for some reason, have never heard of Curtis, <laughs> uh, can you sort of give an introduction of like the characters and, and sort of what it's about? Sure. Now, of course, it's, the, it's named after the title character, Curtis, who's 11 years old. And he's so, so much of a, a bad boy, good boy character. He's, of course, he gets into a lot of mischief, teases his little brother, Barry, incessantly. His, his parents are based on my own, uh, the stingy father. My father was re- really stingy. And he had, uh, Curtis has a mother who really doesn't tolerate much. And that was pretty much from my own childhood also. Basically, Curtis is a somewhat of a, a slice of what I was going through when I was growing up in Harlem. You know, I have uh, his teacher, classmates. There's a, a girl named Michelle that he really likes. She has money, so she doesn't like him. And uh, there's Chutney, a little girl who's very smart, and she's sort of like the geek of the strip, and, and most people don't really seem to be close to her. And she likes Curtis, so there's like a three-way triangle there. And Curtis has a, a best friend named Heartthrob, who's a like a, a chubby little boy who's very outgoing, very positive. I, I wanted to break the stereotype, chubby kids being so shy, because they're not. Uh, they're people just like everyone else, you know, so I, I wanted to do that. Every time I saw like a chubby person in the strips, he was always the sad one, the one you, that, you know, you look down on, things like that. Uh, in my strip, he's the one that does cartwheels and he plays the drums and, you know, he's just excited about life. Many times he leads Curtis into doing bad things, but that's only because he enjoys life. And uh, another major character is the barber of the neighborhood who's affectionately known as Gunther. And Gunther, he he's quite the name dropper. He says he knows everyone, even though you know he doesn't. His barbershop is just littered with all sorts of signs saying things like crying babies wait outside, you know, uh, cash only here. Any rappers that come in must keep their mouth shut. Little things like that I like to play with. Curtis's teacher, Mrs. Nelson, she's become a real powerful player. She's based on my third grade teacher. My third grade teacher was the first person to actually notice that I had autistic talent. And she wrote it on my report card and told my parents to nurture it, to make sure that uh, I did all I could in artwork because uh, she could see something back then. I was always drawing, always drawing. And a little note on that, I have an older brother always into artwork also. When we were kids, that was one of the things we did because uh, we were sort of like a tight-knit family and we didn't really have that many friends in the neighborhood. New York was way different than Wake Forest. Uh, Wake Forest is nice and calm country. I have the rest of my family there. Here in New York, it was just us. And I think I started drawing because I didn't really fit in with, with the people my age around the neighborhood. My brother was able to draw landscapes and portraits, things like that. And I tried to emulate that and I couldn't do it. And my stuff people would laugh at. So I started drawing cartoons and let's see a little fast forward there. By the time I was eight years old, I won, I think it was a citywide art competition from the schools. 
and they gave me a little plaque and a little book, something like that. And uh, I was on my way. That was when I was eight years old. I got my award and I sort of knew this was the way I was going to go. Since I was sort of like a quiet kid, I spent a lot of time in my room just drawing. And uh, what I was saying about Curtis's father and mine in comparison, my father was actually very strict on us kids. He was no nonsense. It, we really didn't like him. We actually feared him more than anything else. When he came into work, the whole feeling around the apartment, it just changed. And yeah, we kids, we just went into our rooms and we didn't have much to do with them. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that he was like abusive or anything, but, you know, he's from the old school. So he didn't hesitate on, you know, smacking you. So it was better just to avoid him. And, and to do so, you know, I used to draw all the time. Then I got to the point where I drew on homework and, and book assignments and I just always drawing. Mm. I love how the comic has also really like grown and, and changed with the times. Like I remember when I was reading it growing up in the eighties and nineties, like Curtis had this big trademark green hat sitting on the corner of his head. Now it's a much smaller hat. I remember seeing his mom, Diane, like her hair would change throughout the comic. Curtis's dad isn't a smoker anymore. And I know that was a big thing that Curtis was always trying to get his dad to not smoke. And also like we're all dealing with right now as we're recording this podcast in 2020, you know, the universe of the strip is dealing with the coronavirus. Also, how has the process been with introducing new changes like this to the strip within such a kind of familiar slice of life universe? One of the things, Maurice, I really like to do is experiment. I don't know how these guys have done it for the past 50 years to do the exact same thing. I need to change. So, of course, things like hairstyles change. Uh, You know, sometimes faces will change, like with Michelle. And, of course, ideas will change because I guess I could say I get a little bored with doing the same thing over and over. The strip has to be exciting to me to make it exciting for the reader. And usually when I make changes, usually the people accept them. But of course, with every change, there has been some pushback. I've had people who wrote and complained that they liked the old hat better, the big clunky one. But uh, I just wanted a, a modern, more sleek look. So, you know, that's what I did. I think all works of art ought to experiment just a little bit. And within a comic medium, you've got a perfect, perfect uh, vehicle to do so. It's just the mindset. I'm, I'm just not mired in one way of doing things. Walk me through the process of how you actually create the strip, because you're making these, or rather the strip comes out every day, Sunday to right. Sunday. What is your process like? I've always got a pad with me. That's number one. And I mean, that's into every room. <laughs> this pad comes with me. And what I do is I read. I read a lot. Uh, I keep up with news. I keep up with what all the young people are doing. Then I sit back. I let the imagination flow. I also think about things from my childhood. And all those things act together to bring up new ideas. All I have to do is think of a situation and then think about, you know, how would Curtis react to it? How would Barry react to it? And usually things are natural. 
I'm my own worst critic and editor. And believe me, before the public sees it, it has been rewritten several times to make it as complicated or as easy as I can make it. Oh, and here's something for you. Once I do these strips and send them out, I rarely ever read them again. When I look at them, I always think, wow, I could have done something better here. You know, I could have done this different. I could have put this view a different way. So to not be disappointed, I just don't read it. There's another little weird thing about me. When I draw something and someone posts something like on Facebook or something and people comment on it, the funniest thing, I look at it and I know I did it. I know I drew it. I knew I came up with it, but it doesn't feel like I did it. It feels like somebody else did it. It, It's a weird thing. I, I know I'm the creator of it, but it feels like there's somebody else there too. (laughs) <laughs> sounds strange but that's the way it goes when you say somebody else do you mean like the reader or or who no 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 with that like someone in me oh someone inside of me takes over and does this creative process because i'm such a quiet person quiet and reserved and then here i go with making some sort of very strong message something that I might not even say out loud to a person, but I can put it down on paper. It's almost like there's a second person here working with me. <laughs> Interesting. So as you as you alluded to, you're really drawing on paper, so you're not digital. No, no. I was trying that, but uh, I was finding too many snags with it. And if I can't catch on to it right away, like I don't have that much time. I have to have everything out within just a couple of days, actually. And once I finish my deadline for the week, I have to take a couple of days off just to recharge. Usually once I send off the last bit of work, I have to go and sleep because (laughs) it's taken so much out of me, you know, so that's been every week I have to now. So are you like working four days, resting three? Like, I'm curious kind of what the timeline looks like since this is daily syndication. Are you always a week ahead or something? Like, how does that work? Well, basically, we're supposed to be six weeks ahead of printing oh. day, but I'm not six weeks ahead. I'm I'm a couple of weeks behind that, only because I need to do that so I could comment on current topics. This is one reason why no strip can talk about the results of a ball game, because it hasn't happened in six weeks yet, and who knows how it's going to go. There's no telling. I took a big gamble years ago when... Barack Obama was running for president, and I had to draw two stories. I drew one story where he got elected, and Barry and Curtis went to see him, and it was a whole big mess, and it was just a big mess when they went to see him. But I had to have another story set in case he didn't make it. So, I mean, most cartoonists don't take that kind of challenge you know, I, I had it out six weeks ahead of time that he did get in. Yeah. And, you know, thank goodness he did get in because, <laughs> you know, I would have been stuck. But yeah. um, by them having that sort of deadline, we can't really talk about stuff that's just happening. Now, you have the editorial cartoonists who have the freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. But I can't imagine what their deadline is. I mean, that's such a fast turnaround. It, it must be really crazy. Yeah, Doonesbury immediately comes to mind when I think about that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
which is interesting because I, I would read, I, I mean, I read a lot of the, the newspaper comics as a kid and Doonesbury at first always felt like the one where like, I didn't understand it at the time. I mean, I like yeah. it now as an adult, I get it, but like at the time it, it always felt like it was more sophisticated than it was for the newspaper. Yeah. Now, <laughs> let me tell you a little something about the first strip, Looking Fine. Yeah, let's talk about that, which you made when you were 23, right out of college. Right, exactly. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do a timeline with that. I graduated from SVA, School of Visual Arts, and the next day, I had to show up for work in, in Disney. They were training me to be an assistant animator. And, I mean, I worked and worked at that. Disney worked us. It was crazy. From 9 to 5, we were drawing and and drawing ducks and mice and things like that, trying to get the, our craft together, making them look like Disney characters. Then right after work, we had to do mandatory drawing classes where we did anatomy and, you know, you look at animals and take them apart. You look at movies they show in slow motion so you see how it works. Then right after that, I would go home and I would work on my projects, okay, because during that time, I was still in other magazines like Crazy Magazine. I was in Ebony Magazine. I still had that work to put out also. I remember so I seeing you in Ebony. Oh, all right. <laughs> you know, I, I was in Ebony for like 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, a long time. I think I started that that in 78. So that was like 10 years before Curtis, and it was still going when Curtis came along. So... um it was always a life of work. While I was there at Disney, I got the contract call for Looking Fine. And I immediately left Disney because I didn't really want to be a Disney animator. I liked Disney style. You know, I mean, it's great cartooning and stuff like that. But uh, I wanted to do a comic strip. So that wasn't my calling. I was fortunate enough to be called to Disney, but it's not really what I wanted to do. So when the strip came through, I immediately went back to New York to work on it. Now, my reference to Doonesbury is that's what Looking Fine was like. Looking Fine spoke a lot about politics and because uh, I'm actually very politically minded. I really like things like science and things like that. And you don't always see that in the strip. I mean, from time to time, I might put it in. But uh, I'm interested in quantum physics and things like that. But I would put these sort of things into looking fine. I mean, they, they spoke about drug usage and politicians, things like that. And the, the characters were black and they were in their 20s. And see, that made editors nervous because you had young black people talking about things they shouldn't be talking about. Mind you, I mean, we still had Dennis the Menace and Family Circus and here comes a black strip talking about, you know, politics and topical things. And and just to kind of place it, like, what year is this? This is 1980. Okay, 1980. Yep. It actually went for two years, and it only peaked at about 40 or 50 papers. There was a lot of arguing between myself and non-black editors because they was telling me what to do here and there. They probably thought they were doing a good thing because of my age. Here I am in my early 20s, and these people in their 40s and 50s, I guess, you know, they knew better than me. But 
what I tried to tell him is you're not black. So <laughs> you don't understand what I'm trying to do here. Right. When the editor said, well, look, maybe to boost circulation, maybe you should add a white character. And I mean, I'm open to discussion. So I'm like, okay, what do you suggest? And they said, well, we could have the family adopt a white kid. I'm like, really? <laughs> there was already three black kids. In yeah. The I said, well, where would this, this white kid stay? And they said, oh, in the guest room. I said, oh, you really don't know, do you? You really don't know. Blacks living in apartments don't have guest rooms. Right. You know, our guest room is the one with the tub in it. You know, <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't work. So uh, I had to actually walk away from the strip because they just didn't get it. And they, it's like they didn't try. What I was trying to push across, supposedly I was wrong about. So uh, I said, look, this is enough. This is enough. And I went back to the world of freelancing. And mind you, uh, New York was the mecca of freelancing. Every magazine, tabloid, everything was there. So uh, I, was, I was able to always find uh, steady work. There was no problem. Advertising, anything. I did greeting cards. I touched upon almost every facet of the art industry you could think of. And I just kept pushing. I just kept pushing at it. I always kept other strips in mind. I used to call them my major works each year. And what it would consist of was if I got an idea for a strip, I would have to write 365 gags for it, you know, an entire year that would make it worth my while to go to penciling and inking. If I couldn't get a, a year's worth of ideas, it wasn't worth it. So, I mean, I, I had those strict <laughs> requirements on me already and i mean i did that on several strips that i took to syndicates and they would just miss it by one thing or another i had done a strip about a fat surly parrot named polly and he was a, a pet shop parrot and he couldn't be sold because you know he was mean and surly and he had a bad attitude and uh, i drew it up and i had my samples and i took it over to united feature syndicate and they said, Ray, we love it. We love this strip. And they said, except we just bought a strip from a cartoonist named Jim Davis. Oh. And he has a character about a fat cat. And they said the cat ownership was up higher than bird ownership. So they went along with Garfield. And of course, he went on to great heights. Yeah. Know? I'm wondering where do they pull those stats from for something like that? I have no idea. Like, that's weird market research for a comic strip. Yes, it is. But just think, most of the strips you see, they're sort of unique, sort of strange. I mean, we have a strip about a Viking that's still doing well in these times. You know, we have thinking cats, talking dogs, the strangest little things. And I don't know what it is about marketing that says this will go. But, you know, they have their own system. I always tell people who are hopefuls. And they said, do you think this idea can go? I tell them, try it, try it, expand on it, work on it, because you never know. Yours might be the next one that takes off. You know, you might have a, a thing about, a, I don't know, a, a wise mouse or, you know, a, a, a duck or something like that. And, and it takes off. How about a grown person with a, a rabbit's head and make it political? You know, it might work. <laughs> 
You talk about the fat cats of politics. Why don't I do a strip with a little fat cat and he's running Washington? It <laughs> might work. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's all in your development. Yeah. It's interesting that animals are such a focal point. When I think back to the the 80s and 90s, and I think about a lot of the cartoons even that I watched, it was, I mean, of course, from Disney, you've got ducks and dogs and mice and everything. And even now, as you're talking about comic strips, yeah, there was Garfield. There was, I'm trying to think of another comic strip that had a Heathcliff, probably, something like that. Like Marmaduke, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, we had Snoopy. Oh, of course. uh, Yeah. Now we have Mutts. And way back in the 20s, I mean, we had uh, Crazy Cat. There were always animals around. But um, I remember seeing it. But usually now, animals are a lot safer to work with because, of course, they don't tread on anyone's feet. Uh, (laughs) And, and of course, any bigoted readers Uh won't be upset because it's an animal. That makes sense. uh, I, I had always thought if I did a strip about an animal... First of all, I'd have to give it another signature. I couldn't sign it with my name. Mm-hmm. And plus, I could never be photographed with it. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> that would be because, believe me, sometimes people will not read it because of who you are. Oh, I believe that. I have stories I can tell you about this podcast that probably mirror in many ways what you've experienced as it relates to sort of the, the mainstreamness of it or people thinking that, oh, it would be better mainstream if you had a white guest or if you had a white co-host or mm-hmm. and oftentimes especially back when the, the world was open i would travel and and speak and i would have people come up to me from other you know minority groups that are like well why don't you do this for latin people and why don't you do this for asian people i'm like because i'm not latin i'm not right. asian and i don't feel like i could bring that authenticity to it but if you want to do it Go right ahead. I support you. They never do it. But like, that's always, the, you know, the, the, I, the kind of thing that they tell you, you know, I relate to that a hundred percent. Yeah. Because, uh, I was on stage one time and a fellow asked me, how come I do all blacks? And I said, you, you're kidding me, right? You're kidding me. I'm a black person. Yeah. Of course I do the black experience. Yeah. And basically I don't include white people in major roles because I'm not white and I don't want to tread where I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that's the same excuse white colleagues use. On the other hand, of course they are not black. Yeah. So why should they draw about the black experience? You know, they have no idea. They, they probably didn't grow up around them and they probably don't live near any. So, you know, they just don't know. So, you know, I, I don't fault the other creators uh-huh. for things like that. Now, what I do fault is publishing heads who they could be more aware of diversity. Everybody is creating. There's a lot of creators out there, but you always have to get past that hurdle of having someone say, oh, yes, we'll take you. That's the hardest thing to do. Yeah. And a lot of times they could be closed minded. You You don't know who it is you're appealing to in this industry. I mean, people could smile in your face and still, you know, stab you in the back. Mm -hmm. It's not really that conducive to inclusion. You you just have to keep at it and have that special thing. The whole thing about Curtis was what made it different was it was about a intact black family with two boys. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't boy girl. It wasn't the stereotype of, um, 
the father not being around. Mm-hmm. Oh, and let me tell you, in the first inception that I had of Curtis, it was just Curtis Barry and his father. He was actually a single parent that was raising his two kids. And I thought I could get a lot of mileage with him trying to go out on dates with different women and, you know, the kids sabotaging it, things like that. But they said, well, maybe he should have, you know, a father just to make a strong point. That's one reason why Curtis and his father has such a good relationship, because I want to push that. Not every black family is without a father. You know, I had my father as bad as he was. I mean, he was still around. Mm-hmm. Not like I could come to him with problems or anything, but I mean, I could still visually see him. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I thought that would make for a stronger storyline. And see, things like that, people just sort of took for granted, not knowing the real thought that I had to put behind it. Yeah, I mean, you're blowing my mind right now, because as I think about diversity in comics, like I'm thinking comic books and comic strips, and comic books tend to be, at least now, a lot more provocative in terms of being able to push different types of storylines and different types of family structures and ethnicity and and things like that. And now I'm thinking of comic strips and they're pretty conservative. You've got like, like Blondie and family circle and high and Lois, you know, like they're these very kind of nuclear family sort of setups that are all white with no black characters. Right. And it's, it just is what it is. One thing I must give to Blondie though they have changed in terms of content. They do mirror some things about society. I don't think they've really tackled the virus, but they have kept up with things uh, somewhat more than like Family Circus. But, you know, Family Circus is more escapism. It's a nuclear family of the past, and they just don't have to deal with things of now. You know, not grocery prices, not fair wages. It's just not a strip that could carry it. Yeah. And it's usually just one panel, isn't it? From what I remember, it it like literally was in a circle. Right. Right. (laughs) Everybody has a hook. Yeah. And that's what its hook was. Like I say, it has that look from like uh, the 50s Uh in terms of character design. Yeah. So I I don't know uh, how it would be if, say, like the artist started it today. You know, you can Mm -hmm. still have it in that circle panel. But, uh, the characters will probably be a lot different. Yeah. Design a lot different just to keep up. Now, the thing you were saying about the comic books, uh, from I, I read them from time to time. At one point, they were coming out so fast, I couldn't keep up. But what I like to do is I try to back a lot of comic books that are being self-published because these guys are really working hard. And a lot of their work is very good. But, of course, they won't come under marvel or dc it's got to be hard for them to try to make a living so uh, i i try to give them backing i give them money i try to mention them in the strip from time to time just to try to give them you know a little incentive to keep working because um the black comic books that i see all of them is they're on the web they'll print it up for you but uh you know it's not under a major studio and, you know, it's, that's bothersome. But the thing of it is, a lot of the superhero aficionados, I guess you could say, they're not really that open into a lot of change. Do you remember they had a Fantastic Four movie 
in which Johnny was changed and, and acted by a black guy. Yeah, Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, and for some reason, they went crazy. It wasn't accepted. I mean, just think if they had made Wonder Woman black, they would have flipped. Well, she had a black counterpart in the comics. She had Nubia. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Yeah. But uh, I'm talking about the, the major movie. Oh, we'll yeah. See that. Now, see, uh, Black Panther, of course, he made a nice breakthrough. But the other black superheroes we saw, like on the black channel on TV, it was relegated to Channel 9 or, you know, like a BT channel or 158. It wasn't a major channel. And that was bad because it had good quality. You know, it's not like this was done on that cheap a budget. They were done very well. But for some reason, I don't know. I just don't know the thinking behind it. You would think they would think, well, hey, we got a black property here. Let's do some inclusion because we're about money. That'll just bring more money to us. But no, it doesn't seem to work that way. An interesting thing about the the Fantastic Four movie, the director wanted to cast a black actress as Sue Storm, and the studio was like, nope, not doing it. <laughs> that, that's strange, because I mean, they're brother and sister. Yeah. You know, so why not? But see, if you put two blacks together, that constitutes a riot. So oh, that, that reminds me of something, I think Dwayne McDuffie said that once about, like, how the number of black characters in an ensemble is like a tipping point where if there's too many, then it suddenly becomes a quote-unquote black property. Hey, look at your average commercial or TV show. They say it's integrated when they just have one black person in it. I mean, when you look at TV today, notice it. Look at the commercials and see what they call integrating. There'll be one one guy. Speaking of integrating, you've got a white guy in your comic. You've got, uh, what's well, his name, Gork? That's, it's Gunk. Gunk. Thank you. Thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Actually, he's a little kid that came from an imagined place called Flyspeck Island. And he was my attempt at integrating the strip a little. And see, I, I didn't want him to be like American and white because, like I say, I don't know the little ins and outs of being a little white kid. So with having a kid that was completely made up, I was able to do a lot with him and bring a lot from Flyspeck Island to this place. I had one reader ask me, why don't I have any animals in the strip? And I told them, first of all, there's enough animals already in the strips. And I said, I don't know what I could bring that's unique. What kind of dog or cat could I do? So what I came up with was the Flyspeck Island chameleon. And this chameleon, though he was a chameleon, he was dangerous. He was a little reptile and he had a evil sense of humor and what he liked to do was pull these tricks on humans that were potentially hazardous so i mean it, it started off with such a, a weird little premise that i got a lot of play out of them but then like in recent years people started going up against gun for some reason and mind you i just had him i had him doing absurd things and he started be like so i had to pull him for a little while and i think i'm gonna reinvent him and bring him back whole different guys and and start running him again because uh there's been a whole group that don't doesn't really know about him people have a really short memory 
<laughs> so I, I could probably get away with bringing him back and doing almost some of the same things. I never try to repeat myself, you know, which is the hard part. So uh, I'd have to do something uh, very different with him. But uh, it's weird because a lot of times the characters, they actually have to show up for work. You know, it's like one day when I'm sitting and thinking about something, all of a sudden Michelle will come to mind and idea after idea about her will come out. And I, that's when I say, OK, she showed up for work. It, so your, your characters kind of talk to you in a way. Exactly. I mean, I try to make them so well developed that they write their own stories. You know, it's, it's just a thing of me placing it in at the right time. But uh, otherwise, none of the stories or the humor or anything, none of it is forced because I think the audience will see that. They will see if it's overdone or too just overthought. It, it makes it a little bit blander. I do my re-editing and all that, but it's pretty much freestyle. And uh, I think that also contributes to the overall feel of the strip. What are your thoughts on like the new school of of black comic artists? You mentioned briefly that there are some out there that uh, you do try to support and help out financially. We've had a few here on the show. Probably most notably is uh, Spike Trotman from Iron Circus. I hope I got the name right. I think it's Iron Circus out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this sort of new school of of, uh, of black comic artists? Well, to tell you the truth, I actually like the vision that I've seen. The guys, I must say, and the girls that I've seen, they are very different, and they have a lot to say. They're very strong in their, not opinions, but in their way of of seeing how things should go. They're very good at storytelling. I don't know how well they are in terms of studying, because most things like this require a lot of study before you do it. And I have seen like some of the comic books that start off well, but like a Stephen King novel, it, you know, doesn't end well. But I could see where they're really trying to do it. Remember, there, there are no real schools to teach you to do this. When uh, I was going to School of Visual Arts, it's more like you're honing the skills you already have. But a lot of the stuff you do on your own, you have to really be into it enough to read up on things and to, to keep on working and working. It's always a thing of working and, and editing and throwing things away. So I see a lot with the younger people. They're actually doing that. They're getting well into stories. They, some of them still, I mean, they still have a little ways to go, but the effort is there. And like I said before, when I try to inspire people, I try to push them on to take it further than they think they can. And usually when they do it, you know, they'll write me back and say, wow, you know, it's working out better. I didn't know it could go this way. I said, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes when you write a story, write part of it, and then just walk away from it, come back to it several hours later, or, you know, the next day with a fresh eye. And instead of looking at it, rewrite it, rewrite it another way. And you might really like what you come up with. And I mean, some of the people have done that and uh, it means extra work, but it's the end product that you'll really be happy about. So I, I think I'm so glad that there are so many more people. And just think, we wouldn't see these people if it wasn't for the internet. So in one way, the internet has been bad. And in one way, it's been good because it, it gives vision to a lot of people who would have never been seen. Their voices 
their ideas, uh, images would have never been seen. But in the same way, so many people are uploading their images that nobody's buying anything. You know, if, if you have 200 people selling comic books, they may not buy your comic book because they're all selling their own. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. You talk about studying, and I know you went to SVA, and certainly we've got listeners and we've had guests that have went to art colleges that have had like some sequential art programs. I'm assuming, though, that's not what you necessarily mean by studying, because you have the opportunity to work alongside many of the big names in the comic industry, you know, Will Eisner, Mort right. Walker, Charles Schultz, et cetera. Right. Um, when you say studying, what do you mean? Is it more so actual studying or is it yeah, like it, peer it, mentorship? It, for me, it was actual studying. The people that you had just mentioned, like Will Eisner, he was an instructor of mine at the School of Visual Arts. And he had already heard of me because I had been, I was an old pro by the time I got to, to college. And what he did was he challenged me to do more than what I thought I could do. I had had one certain style all that time. And Will said, is this all you can do? I mean, is this it? And he said, can you tell a serious story? Can you change styles? And because of that, I was always up to a challenge. I started doing it and I started getting better at it, but which meant I had to read comic books. I had to look at anatomy. I had to do different things just to get the body, body form correct. Uh, playing with panels, I had to learn how to do that on my own because Will sort of demanded it. I don't know if he did it to a lot of the other students, but let me put it this way. His class was so hard that by half term, a lot of the students had transferred out hmm. because they couldn't take it. He was a, a heavy hitter. Yeah, He didn't just accept anything, but you know, it made us work harder. I like to tell the story about Patrick McDonald, who is the creator of Mutz. We were in the same class with Will Eisner. So I, I can imagine Will probably put him through it also. But um, people like Mort Walker or Charles Silts, these are people I, I met along the way. Uh, Hank Ketchum from Dennis the Menace. I knew all these guys. Bill King from Family Circus we talked about. And the thing of it was, we formed colleague friendships. And these guys actually took me under their wings. And I got something different from each one of them. And I think it was because I was so young in the industry. Here I am, I'm 20-something years old, and these guys are already 30 years older than me. I mean, I used to get a lot of ribbing and teasing from these guys. <laughs> uh, Schultz used to mess with me every time he saw me. He would say things like, hi, Roy, hi, Richard, hi, <laughs> because that's what I do in the strip. With Gunther. With the barber, exactly. Yeah. See, my grandfather was a barber in Wake Forest. Schultz's father was a barber. So that was one thing, you know, we really had in common, that there were barbers in both our, our families. And let me tell you, Schultz was not like people thought he was. They thought he was really so meek and mild and everything. Not really. No, he wasn't. And uh, he was good at sports. I went to his house several times, and I mean, we threw around a football, and I mean, this guy could throw bullets. He could throw bullets right into your chest. He was good. He was able to ice skate, and he played baseball. So all the stuff that um, P. 
people thought he couldn't do, he was very good at. Now, people like Mort Walker, they became father figures to me. I used to tease with a lot of them that they were part of my adoptive family because my own family life had been so bad. What with my father acting the way he did and my mother being a country woman, you know, she never said anything like to stop him or anything like that. So um, it's like uh, these cartoonists welcomed me with open arms and I went to them. I, hell, I used to talk to Schultz and, and Mort Walker about relationship problems and things like that. Keeping up with my health. They're the ones that told me about things like that. So if I got a chance to do anything with them. It was extra special for me, but also it made me work extra hard because I wanted to be good for them. I've had a couple of the characters from Beetle Bailey show up in Curtis, and I had to make sure it was just right. <laughs> and one year, Blondie was having an anniversary, and I did a whole week story on them, and I, I had to make sure the characters were perfect. Garfield, Jim Davis asked me to illustrate uh, a page for the Garfield book in 25 years. Garfield at 25 years, I should be dead, something like that. But um, he had me do a drawing and I got a full page. And I said, wow, that's really good. There were other artists in it and they got like a quarter page or a half page. But see, I bust my behind to make sure that picture was perfect. I don't really put things out unless it's the best I think it could be. And these are some of the things that the older guys really stressed on me. You know, you don't just put out anything. you Because, you know what, people could see it. I look at a strip and I could see if someone's just floundering by or they're resting on their laurels or something like that. And if I could see it, other people could see it also. It's almost like they might have been bored that day. I always feel I have to have more hits than misses because it is a black comic strip. And I already have some things going against me as it is. So, you know, it's that old saying of you got to work 150% harder. That is true. I've told people also the hard part isn't really getting in. The hard part is staying in. The hard part is keeping readers interested. And, and you know, for me to go all this time, <laughs> it's been a workout. What's been your secret? I love the industry. I love doing what I do. As natural to me as breathing, artwork has always been in my life, and uh, I can't see myself not doing it. I do imagine the day that I retire, I'll, I'll probably die soon afterwards. It's who I am. My artwork is who I am. I might not be doing Curtis. I might be doing something else, but there's always something in the art field that I want to do. I would like to work uh, with some younger people on the strip sometime and, you know, get fresh ideas and things like that. If people would like to, to come up and I don't know, we work on a book project or something. I'm always into things like that. A lot of people, they're sort of afraid of me. They're sort of intimidated because I've been successful. And I tell them I'm just a regular person. I'm a, I'm a regular guy. You don't have to, you don't have to be scared of me. You don't have to be nervous. I'm approachable. Don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah. There's a photo that you have on your Instagram where you're you're sitting on the steps of your house. And in the caption, I like, well, first of all, I love how you do these long, like, blog-like captions for your Instagram. Oh. 
kind of makes it feel like a scrapbook or something. But and there's this one particular photo. Uh, you're sitting on the steps of your house, and you say, "I have this feeling. I haven't accomplished half of what I set out to do. What more is out there for you? What do you think is more for you to do?" The number one thing I'd really like to do. Well, there's two things. The first thing I'd really like to get into is animation. I would really like to get into a series because my mind is forever being rocked with these ideas of of what could happen in animation, where I would take it. I even have scenes worked out. I had an entire script storyboarded only to have it rejected because they said, this guy told me he wanted something more like The Simpsons or Family Guy. Mm. And I said, that that's not my kind of humor. Family Guy, I mean, I don't potty humor or... or homophobic or sexist thing. I don't do that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he thinks that's what sells. So, I mean, I got turned down for it. And it's a shame because there was a time when animation took chances and they just don't seem to do that anymore. That was the whole thing. Like, like looking at anime and looking at some of the lush movies they do. And incredible stuff. I've seen things from other countries like Germany and things like that. They take such chances with doing stuff that Americans don't seem to want to do. If you don't have some sort of fluffy animal in it or something, they, they're not interested. Or they're not interested if you don't have some sort of rogue in there that is cursing and has to be bleeped. That shouldn't have to be for everything that's coming out. You look at Adult Swim now. It's like works that haven't been worked out completely. Yeah. You know, you go out for the shock value. They don't even animate it that well. Some of it is almost like student projects. You know, uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's really crazy. when I was doing animation in school at the School of Visual Arts, uh -huh. the, guys, the guys were doing better than what I see on TV now. I believe we it. We were working harder. I 100% believe it. I don't get how they get greenlit for it. I really don't. But the other thing is also, I wish I could put out books. I wish one of the publishers would say, yeah, we'll do your book. I have three books that were self-published. And, you know, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, for a guy that's been around a syndication as long as I have, I should have a company behind me doing it. I was forced to do that. Because it, I wouldn't have any books at all. Back in 1991 or 92, Ballantine Books actually took a chance and they put out a couple of books of Curtis, which, by the way, are collector's items if you got them. But they were before book size you see now. They were pocket books, they used to be called. Like one strip to a page. They were little books that... You might even see like at airports where people bought at the last moment. They were like, a, I don't know, a, a dollar, something mm -hmm. like a dollar like that. I happened to see someone was selling a copy on eBay not too long ago. I may post it on Instagram because I had to save it. <laughs> it's crazy. But the, somebody was selling the book for $894. I saw that when I was doing my research on Amazon. Can you believe that? It was like a dollar. So I'm, <laughs> I'm figuring, well, I must have made it for them to be doing something like that. I must be in that category now. Yeah. <laughs> now I, I, I guess I am a collectible. It's, it's wild. 
I've had no luck. I used to make up book dummies and submit them. And like I said, the people will say, well, no, we're not doing this right now. And it was like, bull, this is what your company does. Mm -hmm. How can you not do me? Well, it's not in the budget right now. You know, we didn't do good on the next book. And then I tell you a couple of, couple of months later, I see another book out by the same company. Wow. So, I mean, I have so many ideas. I have ideas for t-shirt designs and uh, I'd like to work with people on them because um, some of the ideas that I have in mind, I don't know how to put out. I need more technical training to do. But see, it's hard for me to sit and do all this training because I'm always writing and drawing. Yeah, I was going to say, you're doing the strip every day. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's not like I live with maids and cooks or anything like that. I still have <laughs> to do you know, all the normal stuff. So yeah. uh, that keeps me from doing a lot of that kind of study. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, those are things that I always thought would come down the pipe naturally. Yeah. But it just didn't show. It just didn't come. Huh. And see, I can imagine there's a lot of the other strips also that have been sort of ignored. You know, a lot of strips have come and gone. And if you bring them up to people, they'll say, who, what? Give me some what? examples. Well, uh, let's see. Well, have you heard of a strip called Ponytail? No. Have you heard of Lolly? Lolly? No. Yeah. Lolly was actually one of the first strips about a woman in an office. There was somebody that says, oh, Dilbert was the first one in an office. And I said, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you have to do your study before making comments like that. Mm. Because uh, there's been all sorts of things that's been out that uh, since they didn't get book deals and things like that, yeah, never heard of. Like I say, the public, they have very short memories. Mm -hmm. So unless there's something left behind that's permanent, people will forget you. I mean, when's the last? When's the last time you, the last time you really read Broomhilda? You mentioned Little Abner to people, which is a great strip, and people don't know it, and they should, because in terms of writing and drawing, it it was a great, it was a great property. Pogo, it was great, but uh, it, it's sort the sort of things that didn't really make it to animation or a lot of books. Uh, now. Things like Pogo and Little Abner, they are now being put out in books. But, I mean, the artist is long gone, and, you know, it's, it's basically just a money grab. But um, at least there's a little history. I'm afraid that's how I'm going to turn up. Once I kick the bucket, somebody's going to say, hey, why don't we publish this stuff? And I was thinking, maybe I should go to another country and fake my death and then see <laughs> how the publishers come out. They'll probably say, oh, poor guy. Let's rush your stuff out now. That's morbid. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect it, to, to, it is. <laughs> to take that turn. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask a question, and I don't mean this in any kind of a, a negative way, but like, uh -oh, uh -oh. shouldn't your agent be handling this? You would think so, right? You would think so. You would think the syndicate would be completely behind this, right? Yeah. Now, mind you. The syndicate is the ones that I brought a lot of this stuff up to. And for whatever reason, whatever reason, it's never done. I've mentioned the books, not done. 
I've mentioned animation. I show, they're the ones that I show the storyboards to, which I spent three months doing and nothing. So what I tell you is if you can't get your own to back you, what chance do you have with someone else? And see, I cry about this stuff so much that I've sort of just started sitting back because I said, it's, it's not for me to do. It's going to be the next generation because we need a whole new group of thinkers, thinker, people who have vision and they're, they're not afraid to take risks because that's, that's how I feel they think it is that, that putting money behind a black character would be a risk. Now I'll give you some bad examples here. I actually sent a couple of books to Oprah's show and I had a, a little note in there saying, you know, I was hoping you'd have some sort of interest in this and maybe send me on another way. They sent it back to me unopened. There was a note inside saying Miss Winfrey doesn't accept unsolicited material, but I mean, they didn't even look at it. So, I mean, can't even get the blacks in power to do it. I don't even know if she was aware of it. I tried to contact Tyler Perry and I just sent stuff to his office. I didn't even get a reply. So I doubt if Tyler Perry even saw it. You know how you have people at the office who go through everything first. Yeah. Like an assistant or something. Yeah. Yeah. They, they decide whether or not the number one guy should even see it. So, uh, I mean, I, I've reached out to some of our top people and no response. So that's why I say it, it probably not up to this generation. And that's the bad part, even for like the, the comic book guys and all that, they may make it the major labels one day, but it's not now. Part of me is wondering, like, because so much of what you do with, with your work is sort of confined, I would say. We'll, we'll use that word. Confined to newspapers. I don't know if many people are still reading print newspapers. A lot of folks get their news online. I mean, I'm thinking that, but then I'm also thinking magazines, because, you know, we mentioned earlier on in the interview that you, you know, were a cartoonist for Ebony for many, many decades. And granted, Ebony is not in print anymore. Right. Which is which is sad in and of itself. It's this is the the year of Ebony's seventy fifth anniversary, and it's not yeah. in print, and it's right. just kind of a shell of its former self online. I don't know if the black media platforms exist to allow the continued education of the work that you do. I'm not sure either. Not on a black platform. Yeah. Now, um, there's one thing I, I do know that a lot of newspapers they convert it to the internet, to digital. And a, a lot of them have taken the properties with them. So it's a thing where uh, you don't really see the strip in the newspapers as much, but you do see it digitally still on the paper. You know what I mean? Like the Boston Globe might be digital as well as, as paper print, but uh, you know, you could see it digitally. So it's still on there. And I know, King Features is doing all it can to, to keep the strip out there digitally. So it, it has a website, but I think it's a subscription. I think it's like $15 a, a year. 
and you could see all the strips they have, but I know that's one way. And, uh, funny thing is, uh, I see people posting some of the dailies or Sunday on Facebook and I don't know where they get it from, you know, but they, they get it and they print it. So that's why I tell you sometimes when I see it in print, I'm like, wow, you know, did I do that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's mine. You know, so digitally that I haven't seen the black platforms actually doing any artwork really. Yeah. No, that's true. It might be the rare painter, you know, someone really obscure, mm-hmm. but not really. And, you know, bad thing about it is most black places, they, they'll say things like, uh, you know, we want to educate the kids, the kids are the future and things like that. But they don't include everything. Not all kids want to be businessmen or, or rappers or things like that. Some want to be artists, you know, some want to have podcasts. You know, there's so many things that we don't cover. It's just lacking on our part. That's why I say we we really need people of vision in almost every venue you could think of. It's not enough vision. Not enough vision. Mm -hmm. One question that I'm asking every guest on the show this year, especially with the way things have been going because of the pandemic, is how are you using your skills to help build a more equitable future uh, for myself or for everyone. You can interpret that any way you like. Actually for myself, I'm really not working that hard on it anymore. What I'm trying to do is still keep out content. That'll keep people trying to do what I do. Most of my efforts now are really in helping others. There's so many people that come to me and they're almost on their, their last leg because they can't get answers from companies and things like that. And they come to me and they, I give them what I can, what I know, through experience of what they could expect or what they can do. I've given people art lessons that it might last for months to years, trying to get them on their feet to get them better. I think right now, one of my biggest gifts I can give is of myself, and that is of of helping the next group that comes along because uh, in a lot of ways I'm discouraged because uh, I can, I can see what all the roadblocks and hurdles set my way. It's not going to happen. Not for me, not this time. It's going to have to be people that come along maybe 10 years down the line where we may see some, some real change, especially in this current environment where hate and racial disparity has gone off the charts. It just makes it that much harder to do. I have heard from a book publisher once that I was sort of close to, and I said, what do you think the problem is? And I said, just tell me, you know, don't sugarcoat it. Uh, Don't give me an answer I want to hear. Just tell me what you think the problem is. And uh, the guy said, well, Ray, it's because you're black. And I'm like, okay, I figured that's what it was. And he said, and we know blacks don't read. And I said, really? And they said, and and what white people would buy this? So I'm like, wow, wow, okay, pretty rough. Mind you, most of the people that write me are white. Really? Yeah, how do I know this? Because they always point it out. 
they say, <laughs> you know, I, I'm such a such a person. I'm this old and I'm white. Yeah, actually, always, I'm not surprised yeah, by that. <laughs> yeah, they, to myself, I'm thinking, you know, this really isn't important. If you like to strip and you want to tell me something about it, that's fine. You know, I don't really have to know that, you know, that you're a white person or a black person. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes I could tell by the name. If mm-hmm. it says, you know, the name is Laquanda, you know, I know pretty much that's a black woman. So, you know, you don't have to tell me, you know, <laughs> if your name is Eric Stewart, you you can be white, you know, so <laughs> things like that, I don't need to know. But um, unless things change in terms of our racial thinking, it's still going to be hard. Now, I know Curtis isn't published or known in a lot of places that don't have any diversity. You know, that's the shame part. That's why strips like Garfield are in so many papers or or seen all over because it's about a cat. And there's no prejudice behind that Mm -hmm. uh, unless you're a dog person. But, uh, you know, (laughs) Odie's in there. There's Odie. Right. (laughs) So he's got both people watching the strip. Yeah. But see, if John was black, that would have made Garfield completely different. Black man with a cat. That's not realistic. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. uh, Little things like that, unfortunately, guide industries. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, unfortunately, that's everywhere. That's on Broadway. That those are, I mean, ballerinas. You see, just one. It, it's just a way of thinking. So I mean, we have plenty of states that won't have any blacks at all. You know, mm-hmm. no blacks. And then things we have to put up with, where um, any of the black cartoonists that came behind me, uh, say like uh, uh, Rob Armstrong, who does Jumpstart, which is a very good strip. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a hard time of it because while they were trying to sell his strip, the people were saying, well, we already have Curtis and that's not good huh. because, you know, it's not like Curtis is supposed to be the only voice. Yeah. I've said it many times. People have asked me, well, what's it like, like to be the voice of your people? And I'm like, I'm not the voice of the people. I'm my own voice. What we ought to have is many voices because when High and Lois came out, you didn't say that you wouldn't run zits because they were both the same. No, we have to stop that kind of thinking. All blacks, we aren't all talking about the same thing. They have to open their mind to it. And I know that even today, it's still a problem. It's still that kind of thinking. It's a little narrow-minded, but um, if you really love what you do, you sort of know that's something you have to put up with. And mind you, I've put up with this, wow, for almost as long as I can remember. When I was a kid going around, you wouldn't believe how many times I would go into an office and, and they would say straight to me, oh, you're that young black kid I heard about. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And they said it right to me. It was sort of like I was a novelty. I knew the young bit would grow old as I grew old. So that's when I knew I had to improve. And that's what I did. I I just consistently got better and better so I could keep on working in the industry. Got to love what you do because uh, all the the barriers put in front of you can really discourage people. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I'll probably still be doing the strip. (laughs) Yep. 
I'll probably still be doing it. I I do have another strip in mind that I've been working on. I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm I'm still writing it, and uh, I think it would be another good one. But I have to see where it goes. Curtis right now is doing so well and speaking to so many people. I don't want to just stop it, you know, just like that. I feel that it still has a lot to give, and uh, as long as these ideas keep coming to me, you know, I'll continue. With Curtis, so who knows? In five years, maybe it might reach some sort of animation or book. It might. One of the things I always tell any of the people that come to me: you can't lose that hope. You got to keep dreaming that one day this is going to happen. Because if you lose that hope, then that's when uh, the discouragement takes over, and and you leave and you stop trying. You've got to keep trying. That's the hard part. Well, Ray, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and, of course, about Curtis online? Uh, Let's see. Well, I have a personal site. It's www.billingsleyart. That's one word, billingsleyart.com. It's a nice little thing talking about my journey and all that. When people look at it, I don't want them to tease me because it needs to be updated. (laughs) It, it, these new drawings, I just haven't had the time to do it yet. Well, we've got, we got a community of designers that listen to this show. I'm sure that would help you out oh, there. Okay. okay. I mean, come <laughs> to me with some fresh ideas, and I mean, we'll talk. Because like I say, I'm, I'm always open. I like working with other people. It's just that I don't really get a chance to do that very much. Like I say, the, the, the people are too intimidated. They look at me and they go, oh, it, it's him. It's this guy, you know. Oh, I'm so I'm so happy that you wrote me. No, you have to get over that. Uh, you know, like I say, I'm I'm very approachable. So, you come to me with some good ideas. You know, we could sit and talk. Sounds good. Well, Ray Billingsley, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And I mean, it's not even so much that you shared your story. Like, as I mentioned uh, before we started recording, there's lots of write-ups about you, interviews about you. You have a Wikipedia entry. So finding out information about you is easy. But I mean, honestly, this conversation kind of felt like I was sitting at the feet of the master, like giving out all these pearls of, of wisdom and everything. I personally would love to see a Curtis Netflix animated show. It's enough black people at Netflix. They can make that happen. And I know some of them listen to this podcast. So just putting that out there in the universe, but I cannot stress enough the importance of your work to the canon of not just comics history, but just representation of black people in print over the past 30 something years. I mean, it's truly an honor to talk to you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maurice. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for everyone listening out there. And uh, I hope you got something out of it. Thank you much. Big, big thanks to Ray Billingsley. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ray and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, 
with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.